I'm saying that there are, in fact, massive, vast opportunities for introducing market ideas into the military, into the armed forces. Um, and I, I deal with outsourcing, but I think we can be far more radical with outsourcing um, in terms of what sort of activities we actually allow to be outsourced and we encourage to be outsourced. Defence and markets are unusual bedfellows. The military is a textbook example of a public good, uh, which can only be provided and funded by the state with few opportunities for market-based mechanisms. Or is it? A new paper from the IEA discusses the possibility of using private markets in defence, from outsourcing functions to the private sector itself, or creating internal competition and market-based mechanisms between services. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Ash. I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, can the private sector boost national defense? To discuss, I'm excited to be joined by Keith Hartley, the Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of York and the founding editor of Defense and Peace Economics Journal. He is advised not only the UK's Ministry of Defense, but also the UN, European Commission and NATO. He's also the author of the IA publication, The Case for Markets in Defence. Welcome to the IA podcast, Keith. Good. Yeah. I mean, your your starting point was good in that it, we don't normally associate mar- defence and markets. They're regarded as totally alien. Um, defence to- regards itself as being something where it's the air marshals, the generals and the admirals who can actually determine how to allocate resources. And I'm saying no. In fact, economists can make a contribution to looking at the efficiency with which resources are used in in the UK defence sector and in any other defence sector. The UK is not unique in this. Um, And the problem is that we, we don't have the same sort of market arrangements for ensuring a drive to efficiency, which we have in the private sector. And the private sector is characterized by you have competition, you have entrepreneurs who have one objective, which is seeking profits, and we have capital markets which are there to penalise inefficiency and reward good performance. And those are lacking in our defence sector. What do you think the incentives are uh, for, for the Ministry of Defence and for the defence sector? What are, what are they trying to do um, if it's not be innovative and... I suppose, maximizing their budgets, the best. Right. If, if I were using a public choice perspective, I would say they, they are there, as you've just mentioned, they are there to maximize their budgets um, because they, they have every incentive to pursue budget maximization so that they can pursue their own self-interest. So admirals love the latest warships. Generals love high, highfalutin tanks. And of course, air marshals want the latest, all seeing, all dancing, modern Spitfires um, that will go even faster and carry on going faster. Um, and a guy called Augustine in America, who was a chief executive of what was then Lockheed, Lockheed, um, really did. He actually looked at Augustine weapon systems, and these are weapon systems which are horrendously costly. And their costs are rising all the time. And that's the same with um, the weapon system that our UK armed forces are buying. 
They're getting costlier all the time and the costs are rising. Um, and, you know, you begin to ask yourself, what is a marginal contribution of these improvements in performance at a tremendous cost? Yes, I think there's an interesting point here, which is um, we perhaps have a tendency to look at defence and, and, and because it's universally accepted pretty much that defence is a role of the state uh, as something that doesn't play by the normal rules. But of course, defence, like any other part of the government, has a limited budget. You could you can argue about whether or not the, the budget is of the precisely the right size, but mm. in, in what whether or not it's the right size, I suppose your point here is it's about getting the best value for the yes. for the taxpayers. Yes. Yeah, it's it's almost <laughs> strange to use the term, it's almost immoral to continue to accept and pursue inefficient solutions. Um, so I'm concerned with trying to get the the all the the chiefs, uh, 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 admirals, generals, um, and, uh, and air marshals to think carefully about how they're using resources and they can can they use them better to the advantage of their service? So let, let's get into that a little bit because uh, a lot of your paper um, might initially sound quite radical, but it's actually something the UK uh, Ministry of Defence has been doing for many decades, which is outsourcing uh, certain uh, functions, uh, certain um, particularly uh, non-combat parts of the service uh, yes. to the private sector. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, when I, I, I entitled my piece Defence Markets, I'm saying that there are, in fact, massive, vast opportunities for introducing market ideas into the military, into the armed forces. Um, and I, I deal with outsourcing, but I think we can be far more radical with outsourcing um, in terms of what sort of activities we actually allow to be outsourced and we encourage to be outsourced. Yeah, so so what are the current sources that are already outsourced? Well, we, um, the more conventional things like um, transport, so um, rather than using military transport, you hire taxis. Um, training, rather than training um, uh, pilots yourself in the in, in the RAF, rather, rather than having your own um, RAF training um, training systems, um, aircraft bases, um, and training instructors, you can hire those in. Um, because in the case of training, the RAF is only interested in trained pilots. It's not interested in training them. It wants people who will actually fly an aircraft and fly it effectively. So just as we, um, for example, if you think of private motoring and, and the driving test um, in most countries, um, you, you, you use private firms to you allow them to, to train um, and, and to actually offer instructions, advice, to get people up to the standard that will pass the driving test. It's the same in, in the military. Um, you can actually allow private firms to train pilots um, up, up to the required standard. And that's what you do. Um, the RAF says, right, we want pilots trained to this standard. It lays down the standard and then it, uh, it, it lets out a contract. Um, you provide us with so many pilots over the year uh, at a price. And this is the price we'll pay you. Um, and we want them. We want you to offer them at the level we require. If, if they don't reach the required level, we'll send them back, and you'll refund us um, the training fee. So, so, so what is the advantage of doing that? What, why should the air force not just train the pilots themselves? Because the air force doesn't have any incentive to be efficient, in the sense of 
trying to provide that service at the lowest possible cost because there's no competition for it. And we know that monopolies lead to higher prices, higher profits and incompetence um, and a, a failure to innovate. Um, and also, um, you, you could actually begin to question the amount of service that you're offering. And you can say, well, OK, you want this standard. We'll provide you with a lower standard or a higher standard at a lower or higher price. Um, and the problem is the, the RAF um, is not subject to competition. It, it, it's not subject uh, to, to competition in terms of the incentive to drive down your costs. And also, uh, competition introduces new ideas. It might well be that um, the mix that currently being used of actual pilot training and flying training compared with, say, sim the use of simulators could be changed. It might well be that the private sector can say, look, we can do it, we can produce the pilot you want at a much lower cost if you use more simulators. Yeah. So uh, you 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 report um, uh, in in the paper that you've done for the IEA that there's there's a very kind of long history back to the eighties of doing this. Uh, there was uh, also a lot of evidence that it actually is quite effective. The, yeah. the Ministry of Defence reported as, as far back as nineteen eighty nine that they were saving fifty million pounds a year as a result of the outsourcing they were doing. And they also interesting enough because it created competition externally. The the services internal to the force were actually more efficient as well. Um, I was also interested by your discussion about the use of private sector financing for capital projects. I mean, that's yeah. become more controversial in, in recent history under this idea that basically the government signed a bad deal for things like school buildings or hospitals with, with PFI. But it seems to be much more successful in the defence force. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is pe people don't know this. There's a tremendous experience in the UK, the armed forces, of outsourcing many defence activities. Um, to give you an example, I've talked about training and driving, and that, that's, uh, I, I live in a part of, of Yorkshire where um, we're close to, in the in East Yorkshire, where um, at Beverley, around there, they actually have uh, private contractors instructing drivers in terms of giving them the driving skills. Um, there's no reason why the army must train its own drivers. It hires in private instructors. Um, and that that hiring in process is done at a price. It's under competition. Um, so you, you have the possibility of some innovation in the way in which you train um, drivers in this case. But more radically, um, we've outsourced almost up to the front line. Not the front line, but almost up to the front line. Um, the RAF requires some strategic tankers. Um, these are basically flying garages <clears throat> or flying petrol stations. And they go around the UK uh, and the airspace and they simply offer to top up um, fighter aircraft that need more fuel. Um, now, that uh, traditionally has always been undertaken by the Royal Air Force. They've always had their own um, refu flight refueling capabilities. They own the aircraft. They provide the pilots. They provide the bases. There's no reason for that. You can contract that out. And we have. Um, we've outsourced flight refueling to um, a, a private firm that commits itself to providing a, a number of core aircraft for a core service over a number of years. And it has the possibility of moving to an emergency profile by saying, well, OK, we will guarantee we provide nine aircraft, say, or 10 aircraft to provide air-to-air -air refueling. 
And then, by the way, if you need some more, yeah, we have we can we can provide you with a further four or five, say. Um, and whilst whilst we, the private contractor, are not using those four or five for the Royal Air Force refueling, we can let them out um, either to other air forces or for civilian purposes, such as um, air transport. So the private sector can actually think innovatively of ways in which they can use very costly, expensive assets um, mm. rather than keeping on the air base and on the ground all the time. Um, they're, they're, they try to get them in the air and use them and earn some money for that. And that actually affects the price which the taxpayer pays for air-to-air refueling. So a case study, perhaps, though, where the private sector involvement in the Defence Force hasn't been as successful as often the case of weapons procurement, and you discuss this um, quite extensively in your report as well. You have this whole concern about the military-industrial com- um, uh, complex, uh, the large um, defence contractors who time and time again seem to, as you said towards the start of this podcast, uh, be very expensive uh, in, in what they're providing, often late, uh, and under-deliver. I wonder what, what you you take out of that experience when it comes more of the weapon systems side that hasn't been quite as successful. Yeah, the weapons procurement process, if you look at it, is a very complex and demanding task. We can't, it's not like going to the supermarket, going to Aldi or into Sainsbury's and buying off the shelf. You know, if, if the Royal Air Force wants um, a modern combat aircraft, that modern combat aircraft not, might not be available off the shelf. Um, if it's available off the shelf, it becomes easier in that you can you you can see the aircraft. That you, you know it's available. You can fly it. You can test it and decide whether or not you want it. Um, often that's not the case. You, the Royal Air Force decides it wants a modern combat aircraft, which is far better than anything that currently exists. So you have to choose a, a firm that will de- design and develop that. And that's a very risky process. Um, and you've got a problem in terms of choosing a firm that will, will do it. Um, and typically you tend, if, if, if it's a British aircraft you want, you, you buy British. So you buy from BAA systems. Um, and that's not unusual. The Americans buy from American firms and um, similarly with France and with, with Sweden uh, and with Germany and with Italy. They tend to, to buy from their own national source of supply. So you're immediately locking yourself into a monopoly type position, um, a single seller where that supplier um, doesn't have an incentive to be efficient. Um, it knows that basically it's the only supplier of the aircraft that, say, the Royal Air Force wants. And it can't be allowed to go bust, otherwise the Royal Air Force doesn't get its latest combat aircraft, um, which is not the best way of guaranteeing inefficiency or guaranteeing efficiency. Guarantees inefficiency, um, and we're finding this with, for example, the army currently buying its um, its its new tanks. Uh, they're not working. Um, now, I think when they're not working, uh, after a while, you're going to have to say to the contractor, "Right, we're going to cancel." And typically, MOD is very reluctant, for good reasons, to cancel projects. And um, but I'm perhaps not uh, expressing. The fact that this is a very complex market. Yeah, it seems to me that there's this intrinsic difficulty here, which is, as you rightly identify, um, there's a whole bunch of problems when it comes to trying to produce goods internally within the defence forces, and therefore there is a need to outsource. But it seems like a lot of those issues, 
in terms of incentives will also feed into the fact that the procurement process and outsourcing itself is going to be flawed. I mean, it's you might be partly using the private sector, but it's only going to be as effective as you effect, effectively do the procurement process, specify the contracts properly, um, be willing to make the right decisions. It seems to kind of struggle from the same information problems, from the same failures of central planning, from the same lack of competition, but it just kind of moves it from as some kind of internal provision to whether or not you can do procurement properly. And often the government does right across the board, not just in defence, struggle with procurement quite heavily. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, the example historically, which shows how flawed the process is, was years ago, we used to have Royal Ordnance Factories, which were state-owned arms companies, and they built tanks. And typically what happened was that if you had a tank order, the, the tanks arrived at the at the army as a brand new tank and the army received them and immediately put them onto wagons itself, transporters, and took them to the base repair workshops to repair them and get them up to standard. I mean, that is not a way to run a procurement system where the goods are coming off the, 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 the ship and they're not, they're not fit for purpose. Um, that a more radical idea, which I do actually look in the paper, uh, is to actually have this, the whole notion, just as we rent a car, of rent a tank. Um, you know, we go to Avis or um, wherever for car hire, um, and all you're interested in is, is a car. Um, so you go along to, to Avis and um, you, you, you hire the car, and that's it. You drive it for the specified period you've contracted for. Now, I'm, I'm speculating on the idea of this being applied to some of the major weapon systems bought by the armed forces. Um, now, this is not as radical as it might seem. Um, we did, for example, for a number of years, lease. We hired um, tanker aircraft from Boeing. And they were on a, as you just hire a car for a, for a certain um, period of time, say two or three years or even shorter, um, and you, you agree to a number of miles, you drive that car and it can be driven. <coughs> Make it driven for, um, you, you can lease an airplane the same sort of way. Yeah, I mean, you have a few other <laughs> ideas as well in the report about how to improve the current process. One, uh, changing from a system of cost plus, so rather than paying uh, for the costs and guaranteeing all the costs um, and then giving them a, a profit, saying, here's the total amount of money you have. I, I, I remember that was uh, one of the big changes in terms of how NASA dealt with outsourcing um, and, and bringing on board SpaceX and Elon Musk was yes. um, he he didn't ask for cost plus. He asked for a, a fixed amount um, and bought, bought it within budget um, and within uh, the capacity to, of, of that. So it kind of changes the incentives. Another idea you have as well that I think is quite controversial um, is this idea of an open, more open procurement process. So rather than buying from uh, UK-based providers like Rolls right, Royce yeah. or BAE, um, you should look more internationally um, and buy from from other friendly countries. In practice, I think you say pretty much the US is would be the one to provide us. That would be the, case. In the US. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> I think for a lot of people, they they shirk at that. They'd say, "Well, don't we need domestic production capacity in defence, and therefore going to the US is not a great idea, um, or going anywhere else outside of the UK isn't a great idea." Yeah, I I mean I I, I would emphasize that certainly. Buying off the sh buying off the shelf from countries like the USA is certainly a valid option and one that's still used by the UK. 
we we bought our maritime patrol aircraft recently, the Poseidon. That is bought was bought from Boeing. That aircraft. Um, you've got to keep that option open. And quite frankly, we can't afford to do everything. Um, it's it's too costly to build all our own tanks, our own missiles, our own warships, our own aircraft. Um, we just can't afford that. Um, so there are advantages of buying off the shelf from, say, the Americans. You you can share development costs. You you just pay for a share of the development costs, not the full development costs. And you can also take advantage of the long production runs, which the Americans have. But I would certainly emphasize that if we're moving down that route towards shopping around, then we need to undertake more careful cost-benefit analysis of the costs and benefits of buying British compared with buying from abroad. Yeah, it's not, it's not really worth buying, but if it's, if it's going to cost twice as much and be a lower quality product. Just That's right, yes, yeah. The domestic industry. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a good example coming up of this, of course, is the AUKUS submarine deal, which is combining the US, UK and Australia together yes, yeah. um, to, to procure a next generation of submarines, um, which is an extremely expensive project and, and something mm-hmm. that Australia wouldn't, certainly wouldn't be able to do by itself, but the UK would also probably struggle to do um, or do as well without the US involvement. So it seems to make yeah. a lot of sense to, yeah. to be collaborative uh, across countries. Yeah, I think that um, trinational collaborative arrangement is something um uh, extremely interesting and worthwhile pursuing and hopefully produces um, at the end of it a very efficient submarine. Um, certainly, I know the Australians don't have the capability of building nuclear powered submarines um, so they can buy into that sort of technology. Uh, and Britain is finding it very costly to continue supporting what is effectively a small scale nuclear powered submarine industry. You know, we're building them in and, and buying them in, in, in penny pot numbers. Um, you're lucky if you get a half a dozen and it's half a dozen spread over about 10 or 15 years, um, mm. which is not the most efficient way to buy and to build um, these very complex systems. So when people talk about uh, the private sector and defence, I think the first thing that can come to mind is perhaps not some of this uh, procurement and outsourcing, but it would be private mercenaries. I'm wondering what, what the, I suppose, the limits are potentially to defence outsourcing and, and involvement of the private sector in defence. Yeah, I, I, I think you logically you have to consider the possibility of mercenaries or the equivalent of mercenaries. Um, uh, I actually look at this and um, I think the problem, the limitations we've got in extending outsourcing to frontline combat units is what I call the the transactions costs involved in writing contracts for using mercenaries. And I speculate, and it's purely a speculation, I'm not arguing it, but I'm saying, let's think about, um, say, Korea and South Korea in, in the early 50s and the Korean War. What sort of contract would you give a mercenary force. Well, it might be a contract that says, okay, defense soul. And that is a contract. Yes, the, the private firm makes the bid on that basis. It, it, it knows the contract being offered, um, but it's got some uncertainties. And some of them are massive uncertainties. It doesn't know whether or not the Chinese are going to join the battle, as they did. Um, and suddenly you find yourself dealing with a completely different set of contingencies, requirements. You know, it wasn't what you said. Yeah. Originally, we said, right, we will defend Seoul against the North Koreans attacking it. We didn't commit ourselves to defending it against the Chinese as well. So if you see, try to think of this in terms of contracting, uh, 
contracting for mercenaries to take on board combat you combat tasks would be extremely expensive and a very complex contract whereas at the moment the military have the advantage of a unique military employment contract they say right okay you join up for the army you spend five or ten years with the army we'll look after you on these terms and conditions um, and we fully understand that, uh, and you better understand, at some stage you do X and Y and in return for which you get paid, but by the way, you might never come back. Um, it, you know, you, you're talking about um, human life. Um, and that would be extremely complex to write a contract of that sort. Um, it's fine if you have contracts of slavery. You know, you do, this is, you, you've signed up for this Effectively, the military employment contract resembles that sort of, of slavery type contract. You sign up, um, and you, you know you, you've no idea what your obligations might be. So, in the army, you might um, be at a base, a civil base, civilian base, um, or in civil times, peacetime, uh, and then suddenly you're called up and you have to go and fight in the front line, um, not just um, down the road, but by the way, this might be thousands of miles away. Um, and you might be there for for years, and the ultimate one, as I've just mentioned, you might never come back. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a different kind of arrangement altogether. And and private mercenaries probably only work in places where uh, there there isn't as strong labour protections. For uh, I'm thinking, you know, the, the classic case here, although now disestablished, is uh, the Wagner forces in yes, in Russia. Yes. But of course, the, Wag- the the Wagner group could probably treat their troops. Uh, or in in as bad a way, if not worse way, than the Russian military. There, there was no limits on what they could do. Whilst yes, in a, a yeah. kind of more more um, uh, in a in a UK context, you, you can't imagine them ever being able to to replicate the kind of uh, military contractual arrangements yeah. with the private sector. And of course, mercenaries can always run away. But that's not to say, of course, that you're regular. Not, not if they're Wagner mercenaries. I'm sure they wouldn't be allowed to run away. <laughs> but yeah, even if, you know, your regular armed forces can retreat and they can mutiny. Um, it's mm. not unknown for that to happen, both those events. Um, so the, the last thing I wanted to get your thoughts on and, and you discuss in the paper as well was this notion of uh, building markets within the defence sector itself, kind of applying this theory about yes, competition yes. To, to, the, to the operation of uh, the, the different services. Yeah. I mean, what I'm doing in the paper is trying to speculate on the various range of possibilities of applying economic principles to the military. As I say, the army, the your, your, your generals, admirals and air marshals don't like that. They don't want economists interfering with their decision making. Um, I, I want to argue the opposite. I think we could help um senior staff in the military um and part of the problem you've got if you look at this in terms of the each of the armed forces bidding for a limited budget your secretary of state for defense in this case grant chaps has got to have some idea of what the trade-offs might be um you know he, he at the moment he he actually has his face with what it basically is the possibility of collusion between the armed forces so you might get the Army, Navy, and the Air Force saying, well, okay, you Army can have your tank this year. You Navy can have your warships next year. And by the way, in a few years' time, it'll be the Air Force's turn for its latest Tempest aircraft. Um, how do you actually assess the efficiency 
of these decisions. Um, and Grand Shaps, or, or, or any Secretary of State for Defence, is dealing what basically is is um, collusive behaviour. Um, each of the armed forces have incentives not to question their rivals' bids for the latest aircraft carriers or the latest tank or the latest all-singing, all-dancing fighter aircraft. Um, you know, if we, 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 if we do, with, with this sort of collusive behaviour, you have the, the possibility, the likelihood, that your decisions for procurement were made on, on the Buggins term principles. I keep saying, this year the Army got its tanks, next year the Air Force will get its aircraft, um, which is not the best way to actually allocate very scarce resources. There are other ways of doing it, um, which might be more efficient. So it's also thinking about here about, in my mind, that there's kind of like a inherent challenge in a military of trying to figure out what kind of equipment is appropriate in different contexts. Mm-hmm. So I think a, you know, a classic case of this is the UK has just spent an absolute fortune on new aircraft carriers. And, and you hear from some people in the, the defence sector will make an argument along the lines of they're basically um, sitting ducks in the case of a war. Uh, I, I understand there's, there's been some um, war gaming around Taiwan that says if if the US uh, ends up uh, having to try to defend Taiwan against China, the first thing they would do is have to move the aircraft carriers as far away as possible so they're not sunk uh, because it's actually quite easy to sink these very large Yes, um, yes, uh, ships yes. and yeah. therefore maybe we've we've made a fundamental mistake in terms of that allocation choice to focus on aircraft carriers because everyone likes to be you know politicians like a, a big photograph on an aircraft carrier and maybe it would be better to invest in drone technology or um remotely controlled submarine uh uh explosive devices or you know it, it just yes. as an example of something of this allocation problem do you think that this idea of kind of if you create competition between the forces potentially you could also try to root out what is the best kind of investment when it comes to equipment. That would be the aim and the purpose of trying to create these market opportunities, which I talk about in the paper. Um, another good example, you mentioned aircraft carriers. I mean, there, there are two or three points with aircraft carriers. Um, you, you're right, they are extremely vulnerable, but you have to find them. Um, so you have to have the satellite surveillance technology capable of finding an aircraft carrier. So that depends upon your opponent. If your opponent is a terrorist organization, they don't have that sort of satellite surveillance um, capability. Whereas clearly a a country like China will have um, that sort of surveillance capability. So your aircraft carriers will be vulnerable if you're fighting the Chinese, but so too the Chinese aircraft carriers as well. But it raises a more general point, which you, you mentioned. Um, I, I, I mentioned that increasingly the armed forces are moving towards buying very costly and increasingly expensive equipment, um, sort of Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica, if you're using thinking of that in terms of the future. Um, the alternative is, in fact, small drones. And small drones are very cheap and they're very effective. And we're finding all sorts of ways of using these drones. So the interesting question arises, is the future one where we might have to have a very few, but extremely expensive Star Wars type equipment operating a large number of very cheap drones? So I'm I'm speculating now on the fact the future warfare might be so different that today's 
existing ways of doing things are going to be, they'll just be different again. Um, we'll find ourselves changing. Um, and again, the, the part of the reason why I think economists have a contribution to make here, we can talk about innovation. We can talk about the possibility of new ideas and new ways of doing things. Sadly, I suspect that we are not going to avoid wars. There's always going to be nations around who will want to want to acquire someone else's territory, someone else's resources. Um, and so they use military forces, just as Russia is, is doing this in Ukraine, to actually steal another nation's assets, resources, and population. Um, so I don't see ourselves facing a, a peaceful world. Oh, that we could. Um, so if we still have a don't have a peaceful world, we're going to need weapon, lethal equipment. Um, and this, this equipment doesn't come cheaply. Well, Keith Hartley, defence economist, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. For those who are interested in learning more, uh, your paper, the, the case for markets in defence is available on the IEA's website at IEA.org.uk. And for those who are enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And I look forward to um, continuing the discussion next week.